I've entitled my message, Biblical Stewardship Requires Financial Integrity. Biblical stewardship is what we're all under as Christians. We want to be good stewards. The steward really doesn't own anything. He just manages what God gives to him. So we're stewards, and that requires financial integrity. And there are very few things, there are very few actions that can damage Christ's church like financial fraud. Televangelist Jim Baker served five years in prison on 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy after misappropriating $1.3 million of ministry funds for personal use. He's back in the ministry, by the way. Faith healers Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis have come under fire for their million-dollar lifestyle and their extravagant estates. They own multiple homes and their very elaborate estates. And they've purchased the latest, fastest, newest jets. And they already own several, and they were criticized by that, and they did a documentary on them. And uh, one of them said, it's not possessions, it's priorities. And my priority is to travel the world and preach the gospel. And if I had to fly commercially, 50% of my ministry would probably not be done. It was his answer for why he bought a multi-million dollar jet with ministry funds. Joel Olstein helms one of the largest churches, and I use that term very loosely, churches in America. He has 50,000 members. And he is housed in a 600,000 square foot stadium. He has a personal net worth well over $50 million. Those examples are a far cry from the way Jesus and the Apostle Paul lived and ministered. Now, Paul has been talking to the churches in Greece. Remember, Greece in the ancient world was divided into Macedonia in the north and Acacia in the south. The churches of Macedonia, Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica were under great poverty because of the, being conquered by the Romans and some things that had taken place. They were living in poverty and Paul described out of their great poverty, they gave liberally and abundantly out of the means that they did not have and he commends them. And matter of fact, he uses them as an example to compare the Corinthians giving. They had promised to give but they never followed through. And so he uses the Macedonian churches to try and prod or challenge the church at Corinth to give and to give like the poor churches had give because Corinth was rich. It was a leading trading center of the ancient world. So Paul has been asking the churches of Macedonia and Acacia to help with an offering for the believers in Judea because a famine had settled in and they were living in abject poverty. So he's challenging them to give to this offering that would be taken to the churches in Jerusalem. And after his appeal to the Corinthians to follow through with their promise, they had made a promise that they were going to give. He says, now go ahead and do it. It's been a year and you haven't followed through with your good intentions. And so he comes to the second part of chapter 8 and he explains that the monies that they are collecting and receiving are to be handled with the utmost honesty and transparency. So Paul lays out for us, as I've entitled my message, biblical stewardship requires financial integrity. 
And I've kind of divided my thoughts into two categories here in this second half of the chapter. Biblical principles that are described or stewardship principles in verses 13 through 15 and then stewardship practices. He gives some principles and then he moves on to how we handle the money. And he really is laying down a template, we could say, or an example for Christian stewardship down through the ages, things that we should do keeping in mind as we handle money. So let's read verses 13 through 15 again. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by equality that now at this time your abundance may supply, and he's writing to the Corinthians here, your abundance may supply their lack, the Christians in Jerusalem, their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. So Paul lays down some stewardship principles. And the first one is, Paul is not suggesting that the rich become poor so that the poor could become rich. He's not saying to the Corinthians, you give away your money and become poor so that the poor Christians, whether it be in Macedonia or more specifically in Jerusalem, can become rich. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that the Gentile believers have become spiritually rich. The Gentile believers have become spiritually rich through the gospel that was brought to them by Jewish believers and that now they have an opportunity to share their material wealth with the Jewish believers who become materially poor. So they shared their spiritual riches with you. Now you share your material riches with them. That's what he's saying. And he uses twice in verse 14, look at it, the word equality. And it's the idea, the word means to balance the scales. He's saying They balance the scales by sharing the gospel with you. Now you balance the scales and make things a little bit more even and fair by sharing your material wealth with them. Here's the principle. Those blessed by God with spiritual and material prosperity should be motivated to help meet the needs of those who are less fortunate. We find that throughout the Bible and it's certainly highlighted right here. That's why We do things like Operation Christmas Child. That's why we took up and sent $30,000 to Myanmar because the Christians in the Chin Hills are being slaughtered by the Burmese militia trying to do ethnic cleansing and get rid of the Christians in Burma. That's why we sacrifice or we give liberally to those who've been less fortunate because here, Probably every single person in the church would say, I've been blessed spiritually and I've been blessed materially. And we have. Compared to the rest of the world and compared through those who've lived down through history, we have been blessed materially, certainly. The greatest wealth ever known has been concentrated in this country right here, America. So we've been blessed spiritually and materially, which should motivate us to help meet the needs of those less fortunate, and they're all around us. And Paul then caps off this first point of his argument using 
the illustration of the miracle of the manna that took place in the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. So he kind of uses that to capsulize his principle, and that's found in the Old Testament, especially in Exodus chapter 16, verse 18, is one of the places that it's mentioned. The Jews gathered manna every day. It was a miracle. They gathered manna every day. It was like frost that came down, and they went out, and they picked it off the ground, and then they ground it, and then they would make bread with it. It was really, literally, perfect food. Manna means, what is it? Because when they first saw it, they said, what is that? And manna means, what is it? But it was perfect food. Nobody had high cholesterol or high triglycerides. Nobody got fat on it. It was just a perfect food that God had provided for them. And it continued for 40 years until they crossed the river of Jordan and they moved into the promised land and began to conquer Jericho and the other city. So God provided for them and they had to go out from the camp and collect it. They had to work for it. They had to go out and they had to go farther out. You know, if you got up late, the manna that was immediately around the camp was probably gone. And so some people collected more than they needed, and some people who got up late or whatever, you know, couldn't walk as far, or they were elderly, maybe didn't collect as much as was needed. So they who had gathered much, no doubt shared with those who had gathered little, there was equality. So everybody had enough, and they had learned that you don't try and hoard it. You don't try and store it because it rots overnight and it stinks and it breeds worms by the very next day. So they realized we can't store this. So those who had gathered much shared with those who had gathered little and everybody had enough. Paul is using that illustration, using it and applying it to money. So the principle is clear. Here's the second principle that he gives them. Gather what you need, share what you can, Share what you can, but don't try to hoard God's blessings. Gather what you need, share what you can, but don't hoard God's blessing. God will meet your needs if you trust him and you obey his word. That's what he's telling them. And that's what he's making the application to us here today. Gather what you need, share what you can, but don't try and hoard God's blessings. I've often said, if you're not called to ministry, make money. Make money. But with that money that you make, share it, invest it into the work of God. Don't just hoard it. Yes, we're to plan and yes, we're to save. We know the Bible teaches making money, investing money, giving money, and utilizing that money for the glory of God. We get that, but just don't hoard it. Our motive for giving is to receive God's spiritual blessing in our lives. That's our motive for giving, to receive God's spiritual blessing in our lives now and in the future in glory. That's why we give. And God puts that motivation out there. He challenges us to give so we will receive eternal rewards. So our motive for giving is to receive God's spiritual blessing in our lives. But our measure for giving... How much do we give? Our measure for giving is resourced in God's material blessing in our lives. I can't give what I don't have. Neither can you. So it comes back to what has God given to me? That's what I'm to give out of. I'm not to be angry God hasn't blessed me in a greater way or frustrated. I give out of what I have. And God is glorified in that, okay? 
And by the way, I believe that God watches and blesses as we are givers and we're faithful and we're generous and we develop the grace of giving. God says, now there's a person I can trust with more money, so I will bless them with more. And they continue to give and they learn that all that I have is God. And so they give more and God blesses them more and God loves to do that. God promises reward. By the way, folks, we understand God promises reward. It's part of the motivation in the Christian life. God promises that someday we will be judged and we will be rewarded for what we did in this life. And he promises to give us several kinds of rewards. It should motivate us to live for him. It should motivate us to give towards the work of God. And to try and bring the gospel to other people. Because we will be rewarded someday for that very thing. So God understands how we're wired. Matter of fact, he made it the way that we're wired. And so he motivates us. Just like we try to motivate our kids to play the piano, do their homework, whatever it is. We try to motivate them with rewards. There's nothing wrong with that. God motivates us with rewards. Matter of fact, God says to us, get rich. Now, I'm not health and wealth gospel preaching. God says get rich, but he tells us specifically where to get rich. Where is it? In heaven. He tells us store up for yourselves not on earth where moth and rust corrupt and destroy or thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure. In other words, riches. Lay up for yourselves riches in heaven where nobody can steal it and the rust and the moth and nothing can destroy it. You can't lose it in the stock market. He says, get rich, but get rich in heaven. That's what he's telling us. We tend to think, yeah, get rich, get rich here. We all need money. We all get that. We all got to make money. We get that. Everybody here has some kind of an income. It may be limited. It may be on a government stipend or investments or whatever. We all have money. But God says, get rich, but get rich in heaven. Lay up your wealth in heaven or nobody can lose it. You can't steal it and it won't be destroyed. We get that. He tells us that money is a resource. So our motive for giving is that we will receive spiritual blessing both here and in the future. But our measure for giving is resourced in what do we have, what has God blessed me with, and I'm going to give out of that. 1 Corinthians 16.2, Paul wrote to them in the previous book, last chapter, he says, On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside some of his income. It was the first day of the week, it's Sunday. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside some of his income to the extent that God has blessed you. Paul didn't lay down some mathematical formula because our giving should not be limited to a tithe. Because some people think, well, I gave my tithe, that's all I got to do. That's all I want to do. The tithe was Old Testament. We don't see that repeated in the New Testament. I think it's a foundation I think it's a beginning point. Certainly, we've been blessed far more than Old Testament saints, so we should want to give and live in a way that reflects that blessing that we've received, but it's a foundation. It's a floor. We're grace givers because we live in the New Testament era of grace. Grace giving is certainly systematic, but it's not legalistic. In the Old Testament, it was legalistic. It was law. 
So grace giving is systematic because we all receive an income, but it's not legalistic. It's not defined by just the 10%. This passage, along with Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47, where they all sold their goods and had all things in common. So this passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and Acts chapter 2, are often cited as examples of Christian communism. Wrong. It's not what this is saying at all. Not what the Bible is teaching at all. What is taking place here has no connection to a political or an economic system. Not at all. This was voluntary sharing to meet the needs of other brothers in Christ that were destitute. This was voluntary sharing to meet an immediate need of brothers in Christ. Not, in contrast to communism or socialism, not an ongoing government-enforced wealth redistribution. That's what communism is. That's what socialism is. It's government-enforced, ongoing, never-ends wealth redistribution. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. If there was an economic system that's taught in the Bible, the closest one to it would be capitalism. Capitalism. So we've talked about some stewardship principles. Let's look at some stewardship practices here. Verses 16 through 24. In verse 16, Paul turns the discussion from spiritual principles to practical counsel, we could say. So he's giving us some some practical counsel on handling God's money to churches, to individuals, Christian organizations, etc. And we give by faith, not by chance. We give by faith, not by chance. In other words, we must be sure that what we give is managed honestly and wisely. We don't just say, well, I sent my money off to this television evangelist, this televangelist, and I found out he was spending it on, you know, air-conditioned dog houses and, and a multi-million dollar jets. But God knows my heart. I gave. God knows my heart. Listen, that doesn't mean that you'll receive a reward because you gave foolishly. Giving, giving by grace and giving to the Lord by faith does not mean by chance. We need to make sure our money is used honestly and wisely. So grace giving is not foolish giving. So whether we are considering a mission organization or a local church like we're sitting in here today or some kind of Christian philanthropy, the following qualifications need to be evident before we give. And there are three that I see in this passage of Scripture. First one is verses 16 and 17, a commitment to serve others. Let's look at those verses. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. Just like you care for him, he cares for you. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you on his own accord. We have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. So let's understand those verses. First of all, there has to be a commitment to serve. Titus, he's saying here, volunteered. Titus was one of Paul's associates, Timothy, Titus, Luke, we all know, John Mark, etc. Titus was one of his associates, and he volunteered for the task. That meant he volunteered to collect the money, guard it with his life, and travel from Greece all the way to Jerusalem to deliver the offering. Now, in other words, he had to quit his job, and of course, that day, you know, they didn't have unions, and they didn't have a lot of things that he had to walk away from his job 
and volunteered to take this offering to the Jerusalem church. In other words, and it says here, his heart's desire, Titus's heart's desire was to meet the needs of other people. Titus's heart's desire was to be the bridge between the givers and the receiver, between those that had collected the offering out of their bounty and give it to those who were destitute. He wanted to be the bridge. And really, that's all we are. In this life, we receive from God, and this is a, a good picture, we receive from God spiritual blessings, material blessings, and then we go and we deliver them to needy people who have less than us. We're a bridge. We're a conduit, we could say, for the blessings of God. Drawing from this, those who serve on finance committees, or in our church we call it a stewardship committee, those who serve on finance committees must have a heart to serve. Titus had a heart to serve. They have to have a heart to serve God faithfully, dispersing the money for maximum benefit of the needy, whether that be a spiritual need or a physical need. They have a heart to serve people, and they're wise in how they handle the money, and they deliver it for maximum benefit. Number one, a commitment to serve others. Number two, look at verses 18 and 19, a commitment to honor God. It says here, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel. We don't know who this is. There was Titus and Paul that were going to take the offering. And then there's another brother who is well known to all the churches, but unknown. He's anonymous to us. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is, is in the gospel through all the churches. That's a phrase that means he shared the gospel. In other words, he was a soul winner is the way some of the commentators interpret that. He was a person that led people to Jesus Christ, but now he wanted to be involved in taking this gift. He was well known as a great soul winner or gospel preacher who is now being involved in this stewardship task, whose praises is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us, Paul and Titus, with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. So a commitment to honor God. This unnamed brother would accompany Titus and Paul, and this man had a well-established testimony. We get that from this verse. He had a well-established testimony with the churches for being a person who loved God, who served God, who's employed in preaching the gospel of God. So let's stop and think about that for a moment. We don't say when it comes to the finance committee, well, that person can't sing and they can't preach or teach and let's just stick them on the finance committee. That's not what it's saying. Matter of fact, it's saying just the opposite. It's saying that they have a heart for God, they love people, they love the gospel ministry, and those are the people we put on the finance committee. We can deduce that. So church leadership would do well to put all expenditures to the test by asking, by asking ourselves this question, does this expenditure glorify God? Not just do we have the money to buy it or to do it, but does this expenditure glorify God? That's the doxological test. The word doxa comes from the Greek word, our word glory. It's the Greek word doxa. And we sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
okay? So the doxological question, we say as a church, we're doxologically based. In other words, we take everything that we do, every song that we sing, every passage of scripture that we preach, every ministry that we have, and we put it through the grid of the doxological grid, the doxological base, saying, does this glorify God? So that means that a lot of things we won't do because we don't feel like they glorify God. They may be pragmatic, they may be practical, we may have the money to do that, but if it doesn't glorify God, we say can't do it. We ask the doxological question, does, does this glorify God? Does this expenditure glorify God? And asking the doxological question versus purely practical ones helps us keep our priorities right. In the church, we don't divide between the secular and the sacred, between business and ministry. All ministry is sacred business, we would say. Every bush is a burning bush. All ground is holy ground. We don't say, well, that's business, let's do it. Because we have the money. No, we ask the doxological question. That means whether we're buying fertilizer to put out on the fields or buying cleaning supplies to use in the bathroom or buying communion supplies, as we observe the Lord's table, we have to ask ourselves, is this glorifying to God? Is this, would God please with its expenditure? That's what he's saying in verses 18 and 19. This man was well known as a man who loved God, served God, and, and this gift is glorifying to God. God is pleased with it, he says in verse 19. So we want to honor God. Third, I see in verses 20 through 24, the last verses of this chapter, a commitment to maintain integrity. We have a commitment as a church, and Paul is giving us an example that ministries should have a commitment to maintain integrity. Let's read 20 through 24. He says, avoiding this, we don't want to be guilty of this, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, we don't want anybody saying, wait a minute, what happened to that money? Providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We not only answer to the Lord for how we use this money, but we answer to men for how we handled this money, is what he's saying. 22, and we have sent with them our brother whom we have often proved diligent in many things. He was very meticulous, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner, fellow worker concerning you. And about the other brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches for the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. So commitment to maintain integrity in handling money. Paul tells us that he welcomed representatives from the churches. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth. He welcomed them to journey with him and Titus and this unnamed brother to take the gift if they were concerned, to accompany him to avoid any accusations of impropriety. It's not enough to say, well, the Lord knows I handled the money correctly. It is not enough to say that. We have to say the Lord knows and people know that we handle our money properly with integrity and transparency. That's what he's telling us here. 
Integrity means men can see what we're doing. There's nothing shady, shifty, hidden about how we handle God's money. By the way, that's why here at Red Rocks Baptist Church, ever since I've been the pastor, and it probably preceded me, I can't really say, but here at Red Rocks Baptist Church, we always have two people handling the money all along the path. Two or three ushers take the offering box in which we put our offerings in. We no longer pass the the bag, so people put their offering in there. Many people do it online, as you well know. Some people send it in via the mail. But there's always at least two people handling the money, transferring it into uh, the financial office. And then there's always two people that count it and record the offerings. It's never done by one person. And to get into the safe, by the way, yeah, we have a safe. It's underground. You have to go through a bunch of cages and a bunch of locked doors. No, it's not. (laughs) It's not secret agent. We have a safe that we make deposits into, and then we take it to the bank. But nobody has both the combination and the key. To get into the safe, you have to have a combination and a key. Even our business manager, he only has one. By the way, I don't have either. I don't know if I haven't you know, work to that point where they trust me. I don't want to, and I don't count the offering. I don't know what anybody gives, okay? It takes two people, somebody with a key, somebody that knows the combination to get the money out of the safe when it's counted. It's counted, and it's taken directly to the bank in a great big armored car because we have so much money. (laughs) It's not true either, okay? No individual has both, the key and the combo. And by the way, we have an audit and a review, an audit or a review every single year. Follow all the procedures that have been given to us by the auditors. We still have an audit and a review done every other year. I mean, we have an audit done one year and a review done the other year. Audit's a little bit more complete than just a review. And they've given us suggestions over the years. Now they don't even have any suggestions for us. Okay, when you give your money to Red Rocks Baptist Church, you can know that there's no pilfering going on or no shadiness going on. Or, and it's going exactly to where you gave it. If you gave it to a missionary, it goes to that missionary. We don't decide, well, you know, we're a little short on the building fund. So we're going to take some of that mission money and put it in the building fund. We've never, ever, ever done that and won't. Paul is saying, just so you have the confidence, he says, In verse 20, avoiding that anyone should blame us of how we've handled this lavish gift. This is how we handle it, he says. People giving to an organization, I'm going to tell you something, and it might be disappointing to some people here. People who give to an organization that is never audited or does not have the ECFA stamp of approval, which is Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability, like Focus on the Family has that. Many organizations have the ECFA. That means they're audited, and the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability says they're handling their money by all the proper standards you can give, and they're not taking 50% of it and using it for administration. What you give is going to the need, not to bankroll some president of an organization, and he's flying around in his private jet and living a lavish lifestyle with multiple homes, okay? Okay. If it isn't audited and it doesn't have the ECFA stamp of approval, if you give your money to that organization, you have little reliability that it's being used for what you gave it for. It's just the facts. That's why there's Jesse Duplantis. 
That's why there's so many televangelists and, and other individuals that have gotten rich. It's just like Congress. They go in from a poor district and they're paid a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. In a few years, they're multimillionaires. How did that happen? Well, you know how it happened. It's a corrupt system. And it can happen in the church. It can happen in Christian ministries if they do not have the ECFA stamp of approval or if they're not audited every year. It can happen. I'm not saying it happens to all of them, but you have no assurance that your money is going to where it's supposed to be going if they don't do one of those two things. So in verse 23, Paul says, Titus and these other people that are going with him are messengers. It's an interesting Greek word. You'll recognize it. Apostolos. Apostle. It's the only time it's used in this kind of a context. An apostolos means one sent with a special commission. He is saying that those who are delivering the money from the churches in Greece, Macedonia, and Acacia, they're like apostles. They're sent people with a special commission. The commission is to deliver the money to the needy saints in Judea. Special commission. In other words, what's the application for us? Those that handle God's money even today should see themselves as commissioned. They have a high commission and they practice the highest integrity. Highest integrity in handling God's money or they will answer for it. So Paul says they're apostolos. They handle the money with the highest integrity because they're sent from God. Let's wrap up here. I have three final concluding thoughts from this text of Scripture. We're New Testament grace givers. And hope you say, man, I'm better off than those Old Testament saints because you are, and it would be reflected in everything that you do. Number one, New Testament grace givers understand that we have been blessed beyond Old Testament tithers, and our living and giving will reflect that. Praise God, I don't live in the Old Testament era. I'm a New Testament grace Christian. Number one. Number two, New Testament grace givers understand that what we give can be used to enrich the lives of needy individuals, both spiritually and materially. You feed a man a fish and he gets hungry the next day. Teach him how to fish, he can take care of himself. So we're not just interested in meeting material needs. The shoebox is another example. Yes, we've helped people who've been devastated by hurricanes and that kind of thing, but we always couple it together. We always couple it together with the gospel presentation because building them a home or delivering them rice or, or whatever the need may be only takes care of an immediate physical need. We want to couple it with the gospel so they come to know Jesus and they have life eternal, food eternal, we would say. When we give, we give with the idea that we're going to meet people's needs, we'll enrich their lives, and we're committed to that kind of principle here at our church in the, in the very strictest way. Number three, New Testament grace givers understand that integrity in money matters, honors God, and provides confidence for men. When we use the utmost, highest business practices, we could say, integrity practices, that honors God, you've heard me say many times, excellence glorifies God and attracts people. Excellence glorifies God and attracts people. So we want to do everything to the best of our ability with excellence because God is pleased with that. God's pleased with good painting. 
God's pleased with good facilities that reflect his glory. Clean facility. God is glorified when we do everything that we do with excellence because it glorifies God and attracts people. Grace givers understand that integrity in money matters, honors God, and it says to men, you can give with confidence that your money is going to be used in a way that pleases the Lord. And rest assured is what it does. Let's pray this morning here as we wrap up. Father, I thank you that you have blessed our church. You know today we're ahead of budget. I think we're ahead of budget in mission. We're ahead of budget in general fund. We're ahead of budget certainly in paying off the loan that we have in building this facility. So I, I thank you. I thank you that you brought to this church people who understand grace giving and give generously. And so, Lord, I would pray that you'll continue to meet our needs. We don't look to any rich guy or some kind of an organization outside of the church. We look to you, that you'll impress upon the hearts of people to be generous with the work of God because we use integrity in handling the money of God. Bless us as a people. Prosper us as a people so we can give and be motivated to receive reward both here and in heaven because you've promised to do that. Help today anyone that is struggling with their finances to commit themselves. It's one of the few areas in all of Scripture where you said, test me now, try me, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing to those who are generous with the Lord. So help them by faith trust you and to give accordingly and see you bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.